I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to another edition of LiveWire. I am your host, Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a great week. Uh, I'm excited for you to hear our episode this week because, uh, well, we tried something that we had never tried before. Here's what happened. Uh, We were at this public radio conference in Austin, and we wanted to get the bosses of the various public radio stations uh, that were at the conference to come see us do LiveWire. And we figured the easiest way to accomplish that goal was to just actually do an episode of the show from a hotel room in the hotel where the conference was happening, which turned out to be kind of a dicey idea. Um, More on that in a moment. We were lucky, though. Uh, We had some amazing guests agree to show up in the hotel room. Uh, We had Charlie Crockett, who's a great musician from Texas. We had Roger Reeves. He's a poet and also teaches poetry at the University of Texas at Austin. And we had a couple of barbecue masters from Austin, Leanne Mueller and Allison Clem. So anyway, without further ado, take a listen to this experiment in radio. Coming to you live from room 1414 at the Hyatt in Austin. Our theme this hour, because we're in Austin, uh, we thought we'd talk about facing the music. This is a town that is known for its music. I am worried... And this is not even a joke. I am worried that we are going to have to face the music with the management of the Hyatt because we do not actually have permission to be doing this radio (laughs) show from this room right now. I believe we told them we're having a, quote, party. So that's what they know. They didn't know we're going to have a live band. Charlie Crockett, everybody. Always a party. Always a party. They didn't know we were going to have guests. They didn't know we were going to have all of you in here. So... Basically, this is the best I've been able to come up with in the moment. Whoever is standing closest to the door, if there is like a loud official sounding knock, go to the door. Do not open the door. Look through the peephole. If the person is wearing a Hyatt uniform, especially if their name tag says manager, stall them for 53 minutes and 30 seconds. Okay, there's a lot of responsibility for you back there, buddy, but we need you to do this. 
Um, huh. Elena Passarello, you lived in Austin uh, for a while. What, what, what advice do you have for hmm. people visiting, for people listening on the radio who might come to Austin someday? Well, you know, I didn't live here for very long. I, I was only here for a year, and then I got a job, but my partner stayed in Austin for a couple years, and I had a really good time both as a person who lived here and as somebody who came back and got to kind of be a tourist and then go home. The thing that I miss the most since I've left is slightly unpopular, maybe. I miss grackles. What are grackles? Grackles are like the unofficial state bird of Texas. The official state bird of Texas is the mockingbird, but that's also the state bird of like Oklahoma and some some other states. But the grackle is this black bird with a kind of wild, crazy eye. It looks like the big chicken in Marietta and Atlanta. This kind of rolls around in its head and it makes this crazy noise that sounds like a camera rewinding. It's like, <laughs> and there's millions of them in Austin. They're everywhere and they're really, really bold. If you eat out tor Torchy's tacos, they, they, they know where all the Torchies are and they will come and they will steal your taco. I'm kind of understanding why they're not a popular bird. Oh, I think they're great. Uh, what do you like about them? I like, I like that they're crazy. Like you'll just be having this like weird day and all of a sudden a bird will walk by and it'll just look at you like, why am I here? <laughs> and, and I feel that way, bird. You know, yeah. Austin can be a tough town. And the other thing that I really love is that I think it's like an Austin pastime to kind of hate grackles. But then there's also these kind of, it's kind of punk rock to kind of uh, be into them a little not bit. Not hating grackles is the new hating grackles. There's like a cool bar called the grackle, or at least it was cool in 2012 when I left. I don't know what it's like now. Um, there's a Yelp page for grackles, <laughs> not the grackle, but the birds. They have three out of five stars and 119 reviews. <laughs> a lot of the Yelp were pictures of what damage grackles have done to people's trucks and Would you porches. consider Livewire the grackle of nationally distributed public radio shows? I think we should go with this. Can we consider the grackle as a mascot? Oh my god. I feel like this has already been a huge success, this yeah. remote from Austin. Good night, everybody. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we're talking this week about facing the music, and uh, we're very honored and excited to have somebody with us who has certainly made a lot of the music here in Texas and throughout the South. Uh, let's give it up for Charlie Crockett, everybody. Thank you very much, brother. Uh, Charlie, um, is this the weirdest place that you've ever played a show? Oh, no, not by a long way, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's the weirdest place you've ever played a show? Well, I mean, I did it on street corners for a long time. That can be pretty weird. What but... makes a good street corner versus a bad street corner? Well, hopefully you can make money there and there ain't too many, uh... Grackles? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever had My a performance man, interrupted uh... by a grackle? Well, yeah, there's a lot of kinds of grackles, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> What's a time when you were playing on a street corner? Because you kind of got your start busking, mm. um, and I believe in like down in Louisiana, among other places. Do you play in New Orleans? Yeah, in New Orleans is really where it all kind of started for me. I'm from South Texas. I was born down in the valley, in a town called San Benito. Uh, we lived up in Dallas for a time when I was younger, and then I started living in New Orleans with my uncle. And that's when I started hanging out around uh, street performers in the French Quarter there, you know. And uh, I started uh, getting into music. If you get into music, you will get into traveling. And there's a lot of uh, grackles out there on the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might be one of them. <laughs> how would you pick, when you were busking, how would you pick the street corner that you were on? Like, is it, you want a lot of people walking by? You want to try to not have a lot of, like, uh, you know, car traffic? Like, what are you looking for in a good corner if, you, if you're looking to busk? Well, when I first started out, if I'm going to be honest, I was afraid. So I was playing in a park, you know, where I wasn't bothering people. 
uh, just to just so I could play. And uh, that's why we do this show in a hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> we want it as off the radar as possible. My man, that's good. I was looking for a place that I could be that nobody was going to bother me to play. Okay. Really, that's what I was doing. And then uh, somebody, you know, threw some coins in my case, and I thought, oh, okay, you know, I'm getting paid to practice. And I remember I moved under this bridge, and the bridge was sending out the amplification further, and I started making a little bit more money. If I could get a few Susan B. Anthony <laughs> dollars, you know, seven, eight dollars worth, you know, then I wouldn't be stealing from the grocery store, you know. So I figured that was all right. <laughs> every time, every time I get a Susan B. Anthony, it's like, uh, it's like the best part of my day. I feel like that should be a more popular, like, thing than it is. It should I, be a slang term. They got too. kind of right, like all about the Benjamins. Should they, be like all a, about Susan. the Anthonys. Yeah, we used to call them. Uh, you know, they have Sacagawea on there, and uh-huh. they have that golden, those golden dollars. That was like, it was coveted, you know, yeah. to get those tips. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any moments when you were kind of coming up, particularly when you are just playing out, you know, in a park or something where you thought, this is not working out? Yeah, I did. Well, I wasn't, you know, I wanted to get in front of more people. So I remember when I was up there in, in New York City, for example, I was playing in Central Park and Washington Square and all that. But the cops started messing with me, and I realized that you really can't legally play above ground almost anywhere where there's residents and so I started playing on the subway platforms and at first I was on the empty platforms and as I got more confident I started moving to ones that were busier you know and I figured out real quick if I could reach 100 unique people at the same club 30 nights in a row I mean every night of the week get 100 people in there to see me by myself and 100 different people every night that's 3,000 people Man, I was reaching that many people in an hour at the G train on the Metropolitan right. stop on the G train, you know. And I had never gotten a real gig, you know. I didn't have no gear, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, now you have a real gig, and you guys have been playing all over and in Europe and all around the U.S. and lots of people showing up for your shows. When did you sort of have that moment? I mean, other than right now in this hotel room, obviously. <laughs> when did you have that moment of realizing, like, oh wow, this is really starting to happen. This is coming together. Well, I mean, there's a lot of times, I mean, uh, a lot bummed around and, and hitchhiked for a long time and rode trains and stuff like that. And uh, we've been running around in vans and RVs and stuff this last couple of years. Um, but we just recently over in Europe, we like got dropped off in a van to go over there. And then we came back, that was from Chicago. And we came back two weeks later, landed in LA and got picked up by a bus. And that, that really, that really hit me hard. Cause uh, like a tour bus, a legit yeah. tour bus. Yeah, it's an old tour bus, and believe me, it got some problems. <laughs> you know, but... Well, is it true, one of you guys mentioned when we were yeah. sound checking, that, you know, these buses are, even if they're an old one, they're fairly modern, and that they don't want the driver being uh, too tired and therefore unsafe. So it's got a system where it doesn't let the driver drive more than a certain amount every day. Yeah. You guys rolled up here with 10 minutes on the driver. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we was hoping uh, that you could talk to the hotel about letting us stay overnight. Yeah. I, well, we, we got this whole room that uh, is going to be empty here in about 30 more minutes, so... Uh, I liked it if the hotel were 10 minutes further away. You guys wouldn't have been able to make it. Uh, All right, well, we got to take a quick break. We have Charlie Crockett here. This is Livewire from PRI. We're coming to you from the Hyatt Regency in Austin, Texas, and we'll be back in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Foley. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Foley, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move 
so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, So I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We are coming to you from a hotel room in the Hyatt Regency in Austin, Texas this week, and we're talking to uh, Charlie Crockett. Uh, Charlie has also got uh, Cullen and Colin from the band. Uh, You guys would have to be named almost the same name. But I've got it written down here. I got it all straight. And you're going to play a song for us now. Uh, Charlie, what are you guys going to play? I figure the first one we do here is uh, it's the lead-off track to my brand-new album that we put out in April called Lonesome as Shadow. This number here is uh, I Want to Cry. You ready, boys? All right. This is Charlie Crockett on Livewire. One, two. One, two, three. She was headed down to Texas. It's the land that I love It's the only place I'm ever Ever banking up I want to cry Cry, darling I want to cry Them five white cranes were falling And the sand gone down Ain't it such a pretty color On this lonesome town Said I want to cry That's Charlie Crockett. 
Hey, it's Luke. Are you a subscriber to the Livewire newsletter? The newsletter is the best way to stay in the loop on our show, like when we're releasing new podcasts, uh, when we might be recording the show in a city near you. Plus, the newsletter includes awesome photos from our live recordings so you can see what we all look like when we were making this radio show and podcast. If you would like to sign up, just click on the Stay Informed button on our website over there at livewireradio.org. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're coming to you this week from a hotel room in Austin, Texas. Let's keep it moving here and get to our next guest, uh, who is a poet who teaches right here in Austin at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, His work has appeared in journals such as Poetry, Plowshares, and Tin House. Uh, His next book, On Paradise, is forthcoming. Please welcome the amazing Roger Reeves to Livewire. Roger, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great. I was I was reading your work, which is incredible, and I was kind of I was looking you up. And did I get it right that um, you decided you wanted to be a poet like hours after you had flunked a writing assignment when you were like sixteen? That's a yeah. weird time to decide you want to become yeah, a poet. I, you know, it's back in the era of timed essay exams at high school, right? You're taking. I was taking AP history. I'll never forget. And they were like, write about. It was like populism and. The Wizard of Oz or something like that. And you had like half an hour. And I was like, well, there's a lot to say. And I would just freeze up. But I knew I wanted to write. I knew that was this thing that I wanted to do, but I just couldn't do it in these times. So I got a D on the exam. And uh, I remember going to my journalism teacher and saying, but this is what I want to do. And he was like, writing doesn't happen like that. You know, he, he immediately allayed my fears, which was like, you don't have to be good at a thing. That's why I like writing. You can actually be really bad at it for a very long time and can get good at it. Like I always say, you can revise into genius. Most people think you have to be a genius. Like you pick up something and you have to like know how to do it right away or have some type of proficiency. But I actually think writing is one of those things where you actually can be really bad at it. And it's really the person that sticks with it. It's less about talent and more about like, can you gut it out? Can you just like look, be ugly, you know? <laughs> Was, was, was your early stuff pretty ugly? I mean, yes. not just the D you got on that paper. We all know that was bad. <laughs> I mean, I remember the first metaphor I created in fifth grade. What was it? It was about rain. And I remember we had a, it was fifth grade. We were having a poetry contest, right? And so they were like, we're going to take part of language arts, 10 minutes. So how good can a poem be in 10 minutes? Uh, and you're going to have to write it. And I remember I was like, oh, they were like, it has to be on the theme of spring. So I was like, spring, okay, rain. And so I'm looking at rain hitting the windows, and I'm like, rain, rain. Go away. No. I was like, I was like it's, it's like baby's feet. Baby's feet in the grass. And I just thought that was the most amazing. I couldn't get past the line. I had like two lines on my poem. Because I was just like, I created a metaphor. Awesome, right? And so I just kind of got stuck there, which happens with poets. A lot of poets get enamored, you know, with their stuff. They'd be like, oh, that, that's hot right there. And it's like Drake. You know, they just look yeah, at themselves in the right. mirror all the time making like music. Drake. They're in their feelings. In their feelings. About that poem. About that poem. How do you know when a poem is done, actually? For you, anyway. Mm, conventional answer or non-conventional answer? Let's go non-conventional. It's very hard to tell, but, okay, so non-conventional is... I feel a big space. I feel like after I'm done, there's this like space. I always call it a field. 
and it feels like the poem opens out into this field. Um, and part of the knowing it's, it's done too in some ways is there's things that I don't know what it means quite yet, but I know that all the words are exactly in the right place. Right? I think there's a way in which we always think about the writer as knowing exactly what a poem means. And, and I think there is that too. I'm not trying to sort of divorce craft from this, but there's a way in which for me, it just becomes really peaceful and quiet after a piece. Or sometimes I've taken years where I'll just like, okay, sit this aside for six months. I don't know what it is, right? Six months, two years. And then later I'll come back and say, oh, I've grown into knowing where that is, right? Sometimes you're writing at the edge of yourself. And so if you're like becoming something else and you're writing at, this might sound abstract, but if you're writing at the edge of who you are and what you know, and you're trying to reach into something you don't know, then often what you're writing is like the future, we're talking to Roger Reeves, uh, a poet and uh, a professor at uh, at Texas here in Austin. Well, then you're saying that sometimes you write a poem and you don't even know why those particular words are in there. Is it because you like the sound of them? Is it because you like how many syllables they have? Like, how did they get in there if you don't know why they're there? Well, I believe in this thing that I learned from a mentor, which is you don't intend anything for the poem, but you attend to the poem. So what you do is follow it. You follow its sensibility. So if there's a certain sound that the poem is making or a certain rhyme scheme or a certain sense of rhythm, you just follow that. Let the words fall in, right? And there's these whole drafts of Keats where Keats is writing and he doesn't know what's next, but he puts like ta-da, ta-da, ta-dum. And he keeps, and then he hears some more words. And the, because what you're trying to do is make music, right? That's like scatting. Well, it's improvisational. Does he leave that the in the poem? No, no. You because that would be badass. What? Well, like so, half the I poem mean, was him being like, uh, something I mean, that's later, what TBD. Hip hop brings that into effect. I think that's what jazz brings into effect. I think we see that in country and western, right? Which is sometimes you moan, right? Because there's not words, but there's sounds that sort of convey the emotional landscape that you want at that moment. So I think that. To me, what I'm doing is I'm following him. Like, sometimes you just see something. You're like, oh, I want to follow that vision, right? Wherever it takes me, I'll let it take me. What do you see uh, poetry's job as being in, you know, in, in modern life? That's a great question. Uh, I think Finally, poetry... I got one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like th- our 700th episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's a question that, th- that we ask of poets in a certain way that we don't ask of fiction writers, I think. We don't ask this of musicians. Totally. But I think it is to do many jobs, right? I think the poet is there to make a good sound at the end of the day, right? They're there to make, to make beauty, but they're also there to engage the political moment. They're there to engage the sociological moment. They're there to engage the future, right? I always think about, there's a quote I really love by Adrian Rich, who is a poet uh, who's passed recently, uh, but was an amazing, amazing American sort of poet. And she said in a poem, Dreamwood, Poetry isn't revolution, but it's a way of knowing why it must come. And so I think that the poem in that way is a harbinger of the future, right? So it's there, so it's there to tell us what the future is. It's there to, to delight us. It's there for pleasure. It's there also to, to sometimes bring discomfort or it's there to be our vegetables. Sometimes it's our candy, <laughs> right? Sometimes it's the alcohol, you know, and you want to blame it on the alcohol, you know? So it's like the poem can be anything we need it to be, right? And we have to allow poets to be all these many things. And I would imagine, and you tell me if I'm wrong, that as the, the writer of this poem, you have to be okay with it meaning something different to somebody else than you meant it to be. Like, you're like, I'm writing about this. And they're like, that's exactly like the time when this happened to me. And you're like, that's not what I was thinking. No, it happens all the time. People say, you know, you were saying this in the poem. And you say, 
well, okay, you know, <laughs> or, or this is the thing that I think we should let poems be, and I think we should let all art be this, and this is going to be my, like, big thing. Art can be confusing, and that is okay. Like, I'm thinking, like, we always want art to, like, have this one-to-one -one direction, and, like, I know I got off at the L stop at this place. It's like, no, art sometimes, you think you're getting off in Oklahoma and you're Montana. Right. Right. You thought you were engaged in Picasso and then you wound up and it was uh, Frida Kahlo. You know, like we have to allow ourselves as spectators, as people encountering art to be confused. And as artists, we need to say that's part of the encounter is confusion or not knowing, not know. Like, I don't know sometimes what I'm going to do day to day or if like up is down day to Welcome day. Welcome to my life. Right. <laughs> so why do we expect art to be like yellow is yellow? Tears are yeah. tears, you know? Like, yeah. This is exactly what I mean. Is it, yeah. Right? yeah. Thesis statement as poem. Come on. No. Do you think that's why some people tend to be, of all the genres of writing, the most nervous about engaging with poetry, like the I don't get poetry kind of thing that you hear maybe at Thanksgiving or something? I think that they were told how to read a poem very early on, and then line breaks. Line breaks freak people out. Line breaks freak people out. If you put the same thing in a paragraph, people are like, oh, I got that. <laughs> you break the line, people are like, oh, what that, is you do? Like, there's a line like, break. Like, a few words in a row and then another and then set of words. Yeah, because what winds up happening is that is a complete, like, it's chaos. There's just white space. <laughs> just like, what are we going to do with the rest of the page? And then you start again. The poem can do anything after the line break, right? It can move in another direction. People are like, oh, my God. Right? We don't deal with that in life. Like, could you imagine if you're walking down the street, say you're walking down Congress Avenue, and then all of a sudden you see a polar bear? That'd be so great. It'd be great. I mean, I'd die, but it'd yeah. be great. But I then, also feel like, to be honest with you, that wouldn't shock me at this point. Right. Uh, right. I don't know yeah. what you guys have heard out that's of the true. news, but that seems reasonable right. at this that, point. They've moved great. to Austin the polar because there's no more ice. Well, and everybody's moving to Austin. Yeah, so. exactly. But I do think Thank it's the line breaks. I do think it's the line breaks that ultimately throw people off and that the idea that poems can be a bit more idiosyncratic right it's not always subject verb object you know the sentence doesn't always sort of match up and yeah. that gets people nervous uh, we're talking to Roger Reeves. Uh, he's got a book uh, on paradise that's forthcoming. Uh, he uh, teaches poetry here at the University of Texas, Austin. I know you also have like 11 degrees from that place, <laughs> like two doctorates. No, I have one doctorate. Only one? Only one. Oh, well, one. get back to me when you have two, Roger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I know that you, 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 brought, uh, you brought something you're going to read, a couple yeah. of poems, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, would you mind sharing that with sure. us? Sure. Uh, this first poem is called Climate Change. And I, I don't know if you remember last December or so, there was this picture of a polar bear. In Austin. In Austin. <laughs> All right. No, it was a polar bear on, on, on ice, and it looked like it was at the end of its life. And I, I became very sort of intrigued by this polar bear and actually did research uh, on the polar bear and what its particular predicament was. People were sort of talking about climate change in this way. And so I was thinking about this polar bear um, and also thinking about my father who passed. So this poem is called Climate Change. What is the man now who has lost his tail? What... What is he to do without his heavy bear? I saw it dragging across the ice, its hind legs broken by appetite, like an angry father thrashing the kitchen sink with a kitchen chair, leaving a leg there and another there, lugging the rest to a rusted barrel to burn everywhere that will receive this urn and panther carrying its darkness 
and dead heart across the sky. Who would interfere with starving, kill a walrus, seal, whale, interferes too late. His death already eating its after dinner cake while riding atop his blank spine. Death prim, death neat. His bare mouth flooding a trash can finds a skull devoid of meat, tears. He is learning in his broken fur that he's always been committed to genocide. Cancer or climate change, the withness of his body committed to the epistemology of loss. His hunger, honey smeared across his face. Eyes wrung out like a dish rag, scraped out of scrape, left in an oily puddle at the curb. Let him drift and tremble. Let the scab moss and drying Timothy grease and coffin his wake. His dying slashed across the tundra grass where I twitch. Everywhere I put my bare paws down and starve. Everywhere I am God's unaccounted for pleasure. Behold the future. It is bare. Roger Reeves, everybody. I'd like to retract my polar bear joke if it's not too late. <laughs> that was intense and amazing. Yeah. Um, how long ago did you write that? I started that poem uh, in December. I have a three-year-old and was just thinking about what his father is and fatherhood. And I wrote sort of a longer draft of it. And I just started taking out lines and taking out and taking out and taking out until I felt like I had mm -hmm. sort of exactly what I wanted, which was a conflation of the father and the bear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I got to know your poetry not by picking up King Me, your amazing debut, but by hearing you read first. I think it was before King Me came out. So my my experience with you has been sonic mm -hmm. before it was, yeah. you know. Yeah, literate, sort of yeah, literate on culture. On the page, yeah. right? And then you had all this wonderful talk about music and uh, listening for the music and ending with the sound. How do you deal with those two audiences, the eyeball audience and the, the experiential audience? I think uh, the eyeball audience, I'm thinking about line, right? So I'm thinking about music. So for instance, that one is playing with blank verse. So there's a unrhymed iambic pentameter happening throughout. Or the rhymes, what I'm doing is I'm syncing them in the middle of the line. So that if you know anything about poetry, if you're looking just for the pleasure of the poem, the pleasure of the poem is in the sound that's happening just a little off kilter, right? As opposed to allowing it to happen on the end of the line, it's happening in the middle or it's happening slightly to the left of the middle, right? So it allows for uh, a sort of difference in play. Um, and then, I mean, if you're really in the literature, then you might like look up like, who else wrote a bear poem? And then you might, you might see some, some similarities. You might look up John Berryman, right? There's a way in which his poems in conversation with like three poets simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all types of pleasure in this poem. Um, and how I'm thinking about the poem for the reader is, I always think that a first line should snap you out of whatever world you're in and into the world of the poem and, and make you want to read the next line, right? So I'm always sort of trying to shuttle you down the poem and get you to, to sort of like, oh my God, I've... I've stayed for this poem. It's probably like what you're doing when you're busking, right? It's like they hear something, then you want them to keep hearing, right? And so that's what I'm, I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sort of move you through through startling imagery or through a sense of sound, whatever it is, right? Um, arrest you. The goal of the poem is to actually stop you. Mm. The poem wants to disobey time. It is a disobedient sort of machine. It doesn't believe in linear time. It wants to say, no, 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 stop. Stop, stop, stop. Slow down. 
I know you got one more poem here, Roger. Yeah. So uh, can we hear that one? Sure. Uh, this one's called Children Listen. It turns out, however, that I was deeply mistaken about the end of the world. The body in flames will not be the body in flames, but just a house fire ignored. The black sails of that solitary burning boat rubbing along the legs of a lover's flung into an Austin sky by a carousel. The lovers too sick in their love to notice a man drenched in fire on a porch or a child aflame mistaken for a dog, mistaken for a child running to tell of a bomb that did not knock before it entered in Gaza with its glad tidings of abundant joy. In Casimir's, a god is weeping in a window, one golden hand raised above his head as if he slipped on the slick rag of the future. Our human kindnesses, unremarkable as the flies rubbing their legs together while standing on a slice of cantaloupe. Children, you were never meant to be human. You must be the grass. You must grow wildly over the graves. Roger Reeves, everybody, right here on Livewire. Uh, Roger, that was beautiful. Um, but we, we want to try to get to know you on an even deeper level. Sure. Which okay. we try to do with our guests here on Livewire. Here we go. Uh, and so what we usually do is, is we have a jar, okay? Okay. Um, although, uh, because we're in a hotel suite and we didn't want to fly the jar all the way from <laughs> Portland, what we have is an ice bucket. Sure. Okay, but in this ice bucket are the five essential questions of our time. Okay. 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 And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have you pick one. We're going to have Elena Passarello read it to you. Then we'd like your honest answer. We Excellent. call this the ice bucket of truth. <laughs> oh, man. I feel like Are I'm you about ready to, to take on the ice bucket of truth? I feel like Roger? I'm about to pick my destiny here. Yeah, here we go. it's intense. This is real. Okay. I hope it doesn't Roger, send to Roger the has chosen a question from the ice bucket of truth. Elena will now read it. All right. Noted American poet Roger Reeves. True or false? Hmm. Some notebooks are just too pretty to write in. Oh, false. <laughs> I, think it, I think some notebooks are too ugly to write in. What's an example of a notebook that's too ugly to write in? If the pages don't allow the pen to move quickly across oh, yeah. it, then you're like, what are we doing here? Like, like, I can't use that notebook. It's officially an ugly notebook. So, no, a pretty notebook, like, is always, uh, you know, a pretty notebook wants to be scarred. So you don't have that. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hold on. I need this fan. <laughs> Starting to feel things. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what, Roger? You dispatched that uh, that question with alacrity. We got to do I'm another sorry. one. Okay. You got to go good. back in. You, you got to go back one. in, my another friend. One. Second <laughs> question from the jar of truth for Roger Reeves. He has now selected the second question. Okay. Noted American poet Roger Reeves. <laughs> do you really need to wash the sheets in between guests? Ooh. Like every guest. Yes. Oh. <laughs> You're a hard yes. I'm a hard yes as someone who spends a lot of time traveling. <laughs> Please wash them sheets for me. Don't you feel the, like... Wash them sheets, shouty. The band just got off tour. Yeah. They're like, yeah. yes, please wash the sheets. But let me ask you this. I feel like there is a certain kind of system that I have in mind of, okay, if there are family members... 
that are sleeping in the sheets after other family members, depending on what the relationship is, I am more okay with it than like, I got four sisters. They're lovely. If I was asleep in a bed that my sister had slept in recently, no big deal. But if it's a total stranger, you got to wash that. I, okay. So we're getting into the private lives. Like, I don't know every, like, okay. (laughs) I got a sister as well. Right. Yeah. I love her. She's amazing. right? Right. I still go, like you don't I, know what's going on in that bed when you're not there. I mean, like people have rituals. People do a lot of things. Yeah. You just want to, you just want to respect their ritual and respect that someone else might have another ritual. Right. And you just want to respect rituals. Right. Mm-hmm. And cleaning the sheets is a way we can all have our rituals and be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you said a lot, Roger Reeves. Everybody, on Paradise, his new book is forthcoming. Thanks for coming on Livewire. Charlie Crockett and his band. Heck yeah. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. We're coming to you this week from a hotel room in Austin, Texas. And we've been talking a lot about music and about poetry. Uh, we would be remiss, though, if we didn't also address Austin's other major export, which is barbecue. Uh, here in Austin, you can't swing a dead pig without hitting another deliciously smoked dead pig. Um, and two of Austin's most beloved practitioners are Leanne Mueller and Allison Clem, owners of La Barbecue. Let's bring them up now. All right. Uh, welcome to Livewire, both of you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, uh, Leanne, let me just try to lay out the story of, of you guys coming to own this uh, barbecue place, uh, as I understand it, and you just let me know if I got it mostly right. Um, you come from a, a real kind of legendary barbecue family here in the area. Absolutely. And, but you didn't want your life to be about barbecue. No. So you, you went off and became a really accomplished photographer. Uh, and then your father passed away pretty suddenly, and your brother was running a barbecue joint that wasn't doing so well. And you came back and sort of took over that joint. Well, I have two brothers. Okay. So I have Wayne that runs Louis Miller's, and then I have John that has his own place. And okay. I took over John's okay. place. And, and you, you, the two of you took it over without a ton of experience of actually running your own place. I know you'd worked you know, intermittently at the family business, Leanne. And then you had to put up with some customers giving you guys BS because you're a gay couple. Oh yeah, that was and, fun. And so then you learned. <laughs> then you learned how to run this barbecue place. You reinvented the menu, and now you have one of the most popular barbecue joints in Austin. You. Is that the basics of the story? That's that's, that's pretty, that's pretty, pretty much. That's not too shabby, you guys. Way to go. And I swear to you, my dad from his grave is it will never let me not run a, the barbecue place the way it's supposed to be. Because, really? No, I mean he literally is the reason that. I run the barbecue the way I do, and I, I love that man more than anything. He was my inspiration for everything. Um, Don't cry. <laughs> I wanted to ask a super basic question right out, uh, out the gate, which is what differentiates Texas barbecue from other places? We were having some earlier today, and we were enjoying it, but we were like, we wouldn't know this from other barbecue necessarily. What makes Texas barbecue so different? It's absolutely brisket. <laughs> Brisket and now beef ribs, mm-hmm. homemade sausage, because 
sausage is really important because it's going to be a German and Czech thing. And that's so. regional? Like, I mean, I, mm -hmm. you can get those at other places in other parts of the country. Do you guys do them different here in Texas? Brisket is absolutely Central Texas barbecue. I definitely agree. Also, I think that there's different cuts of meat, and beef is big in Texas as well. But um, The cow wins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think the cow loses if you're, like, a cow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to... Yeah. So your definition of winning is... Yeah. You know what? I agree with you on that 100%. <laughs> they lose a lot around our place. I used to be vegan, so I can tell you right now. What? Really? Wait, yeah. hold, well, the cow absolutely okay. loses. No, no, no. Uh, uh, now, hold on. You come from this legendary Texas barbecue family, and, and uh, was being a vegan uh, ethical? Was it rebellion against your parents? I what? think it's part of my lesbianhood. That oh, I think at one point when you're gay that you have to be vegan. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. <laughs> it's like a, like a, like a Herculean yeah, trial like, kind of a yes. thing. Yeah. <laughs> Was the first thing you ate when you finished your vegan time a brisket barbecue? You know, I was um, literally, seriously, my dad passed away suddenly in 2008 and I hadn't eaten meat like red meat in forever. I was doing chicken. And then I was like, if my dad's going to die at like 69, I'm going to eat a burger. So the first thing I did was eat a burger. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Did you go somewhere special for that? It was just like a I went to Wendy's Ed. in Rancho Cucamonga. No, I ate an Ed's burger in Taylor, Texas behind mm. my dad's place and ate one of the best beer joint burgers in your whole life. I literally will eat anything at this point. <laughs> Do you guys have conversations like, honey, let's talk about cholesterol. <laughs> it's a uh, myth. <laughs> <laughs> Leanne, are you still uh, you're still a very successful photographer? You you guys go back and forth between L.A. and Austin. Mm -hmm. Are you still funding some part of the operation here of La Barbecue with with photography? I think yeah. I think they'll always be crossed. There's no way to get around it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, they definitely both take care of each other. Really? Yeah. So I, I'd read an article where you said that it, the photography allows you to pay everybody, make sure everybody at La Barbecue gets paid on time, fair wages. Like, uh, would you, if you get to the point where you don't, for, for financial reasons, need to do photography, it's something you still want to do. Like, do you need that duality in your life, the photography and the barbecue? I, I have to have photography. It's my heart and soul. It is, you know, actually at this point, La Barbecue allows me to be the photographer that I want to be. I've recently left my rep, which is kind of like leaving your parent. Mm. But, you know, it's just like something that's I have to have it. It's just who I am. Are and there any overlaps between photography? I know you you take pictures for Rolling Stone. You've taken pictures of just a long, long list of super famous people. Uh, is there any connection between when you're doing that and when you're just like just up to your elbows in Brisket. cows that are winning. <laughs> so I went from shooting Jay-Z to feeding Jay-Z the last ACL. So I literally was like, this is my career. I am huh. literally like, I shot Jay-Z for the 15th anniversary for Vibe. And we fed him for two weeks, him and Beyonce. And I was like, this is where my career is. I'm not shooting these people anymore. I'm feeding them. <laughs> and it's just like you look at this and you're like, but I'm really happy, you know? That is a full service photographer. <laughs> <laughs> like you have the catering handled. Now, Allison, um, have you enjoyed this this whole life of, of having this barbecue place? It's been an adventure for sure. I've grown up 
and totally different situation, of course. Restaurant and bar was, you know, my career through college and everything. But I had to retrain myself totally when it comes to barbecue, from the ordering to the cooking to the scheduling. It's just crazy because, you know, it takes so long to cook everything that you have to order so many days out in advance. And then the prep time, and it's just, it was crazy. Did you have any <laughs> moments where you looked over to Leanne and you were like, babe, this is a terrible idea. Every day. Every day. <laughs> Still? You know when Every she day. found out that I was actually going to buy the restaurant, she was like, that's was the most horrible decision so you've pissed. ever made. <laughs> I don't so think pissed. we talked for two weeks. At, at least. How well, are you guys doing now? You know, we're good. <laughs> we offer free counseling as a show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, we hope you stick with it because the food is amazing and it's such a cool place. Leanne Mueller and Allie Clem. Thanks for being on Livewire. That's Leanne Mueller and Allison Clem. You are listening to Livewire Radio from PRI. We are in Austin at the Hyatt Regency, and we'll be back in just a moment. Special thanks this episode of Livewire to Tony Passarello. Golly, that name sure sounds familiar. Could that be because Tony is Elena Passarello, our announcer's father? That's exactly why it sounds familiar. Tony is not only Elena's dad, but he's part of the Livewire member community now. Can you think of another show that has the staff members' parents donating to the program? That is how important the Livewire member community is. And we thank Tony and the rest of the community for their generous support. Uh, a donation that Tony makes each month is a big part of how we are able to do this show. So thanks, Tony. Thanks to everybody out there who's been supporting Livewire. We could not do this without you. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello, and uh, we are in Austin at the Hyatt Regency. So Leanne and Allie, uh, your, your place is called La Barbecue, which is sort of the feminine article, uh, sending a message about, about your place. It's a really cool name for a barbecue joint. Unfortunately, not all barbecue joints have classy names like that. And so we've put together a list of actual barbecue joint names and then some that we just made up. And we're calling this little quiz BBQ Joint or Hogwash. Okay. Then we learn, then we learn that Hogwash is the name of a barbecue joint in Florida. I believe that. So we're going to give you some names and you got to tell us if these are uh, made up or real barbecue joints. Okay. Oink and Doink. Real name. I don't know about that. I hope not. I'm going to say yes. <laughs> you hope not. Yeah. Allison is right. That is totally made up. It's hogwash. How about the shaved duck? Absolutely. Leanne? I'm going to say yes. Uh, that is a real barbecue place in St. Louis. Congratulations. How about uh, right up in Yo Grill BBQ? Absolutely. I hope so. We made that up, but I am sure it's going to be. Oh, yeah, it's, it's oh. going to be the name of a place. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm going to tell you it's down. Warren G's next place. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what about rampant rib ticklers? No, Leanne. I'm going to say no on that one too. Yeah. You're both absolutely right. We made that up. Well done. Squat and gobble. <laughs> You know what? I'm hoping that it's a yes. Yes, yes. 
Not only is it a yes, it is a real barbecue place in several states. Oh. <laughs> You're kidding me. Squat and gobble? I am, I am not. I am not. Oh, my God. That's going to be my next pickup line. Yeah. <laughs> Squat and gobble. Well, you got there, Leanne. We're happy for you. Leanne Mueller and Allison Clem, everybody, right here on Livewire. Um, because our, our theme, uh, this show, is facing the music, being here in Austin, we wanted to ask the uh, audience here uh, in the room 1414 at the Hyatt if they want to tell us about a time that they had to stop and face the music. And people filled those out and passed them forward. Elena Passarello, uh, what are you seeing over there? Oh, here's a good time uh, that somebody had to stop and face the music from Carol. The day my orchestra teacher finally realized I wasn't actually blowing into the oboe. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Karen. <laughs> accordion rim shot. You nice. rarely, you rarely nice. hear that. That might be the world's first accordion. I so relate to Carol. I when I was in uh, in fourth grade at Daniel Bagley Elementary School, the music teacher came around to all the classes to try to like. Uh, recruit kids to be in the band and the way that he demonstrated how cool it was to be in the band he had a trumpet and he played the theme to the cartoon transformers oh yeah and i sat there enraptured i was like well this is my new job in life is to play trumpet and learn how to play transformers so i got a trumpet my parents rented me one from Canelli keys which was a big outlay for them at the time and i went and i went to like two of the like classes or whatever you know and I was so bad and it was so hard to play Transformers and so yeah. you guys Mr. Morrison is here from Daniel Bagley Elementary School that's insane Mr. Colin Fox Livewire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines who asks what comes to mind when you think of Alaska Airlines. Snowdrifts and husky puppies? Well, how about sunscreen and salsa dancing? Yeah, don't be fooled by the name. Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world with 1,200 daily flights and over 115 destinations like New York, Honolulu, and Mexico City. So the next time you think Alaska Airlines, think skylines, luau's, and margaritas. Find out where else they fly at alaskaair.com. All right, uh, we've got time for another song from Charlie Crockett. Uh, Charlie, what are you going to play for us? Well, I appreciate you letting us play. Uh, this evening, we're having a great time. I'm going to do an unrecorded song for y'all that I wrote called uh, Five More Miles. All right, this is Charlie Crockett here on Livewire. Watch the crow as he fly, see my struggle in his eye. You don't want me, yes I know, five more miles for me to go. That two train running at these damn times, that sun come up, I'm going down. You saying I'm free, but I just don't know, five more miles. Me too. 
Call me Joe Christmas, that's my name. I got this river running through my veins. At night in August, this show do glow. Five more miles for me to go. I know this life, the show is hard. All I can do is pay my cost. Keep calling me free, but I just don't know. Five more miles for me to go. Five more miles for me to go. Charlie Crockett, Colin Colby, and Colin Fox. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. Thanks to our guests, Charlie Crockett, Allison Clem, Leanne Mueller, and Roger Reeves. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our operations director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was co-created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Zachary Simons of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, for his support. For more information about our show or how you can catch our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.